Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Critical Thinking, episode 17. Uh, I am the executive producer here at Final Show Films, John, at Johnny Bates on Twitter. And I'm joined today by Jack. Hey, everybody, I'm Jack. I'm at AltF4Gamers on Twitter. And Jeremy. Hi, I'm Jeremy. I'm JThomas411Mania on Twitter. And today we're talking about Critical Role, episode 18. The Trial of the Take, Part 1. Um, <clears throat> uh, this episode is starring Laura Bailey as Vexalia, Talzin Jaffe as Percy, Sam Regal as Scanlon, Travis Willingham as Grog, uh, special guest Felicia Day as Lyra, and Mary Elizabeth McGlynn as Zara Hydras, and of course, as always, Matthew Mercer as the Dungeon Master. Ah, uh, okay. Previously on Critical Role, the party found themselves in the city of Vasselheim, a very deity and religion-based city, and a very harsh environment. It's far up north in the continent that it, that it lives on, and the weather itself is very cold, the landscape is very harsh and rugged, and outside the city there is, there is an extremely dark, oppressive, and almost unnaturally fast-growing forest known as the Vesper Timberland. This is where uh, the group encountered a hydra last time, and they had just barely checked outside the city to find the creature. Uh, the city itself is well prepared to defend against it's, itself against whatever atrocities that uh, make their way towards the outskirts of the city. And after Grog fought gloriously in the Crucible and just barely lost, the test of strength didn't, just didn't fall in his favor, uh, he sulked via ale on the ladies' back of the tavern. The party, after defeating the Hydra, being this was this is almost verbatim what Matt said, and he seemed to have lost his track a little bit halfway through. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the party, after defeating the Hydra, uh, being called on their law breakage in Vasselheim, have been tasked in return uh, tasked to return the next morning uh, to the. Sl- uh, I'm adding this in because he didn't say to the Slayers take the group of the group of hunters that uh, the 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 monster hunting guild in Vasselheim as separate groups to figure out what contract is being given them and what members of their team await them as they arrive. I I don't know what happened halfway through there. It's, he definitely lost track and missed certain pieces of information that would have been relevant. <laughs> I mean, it happens when you're doing a recap. Oh, no, it does. It certainly does. So to, to, to add on to that, after Grog, after Grog celebrated air quotes, they went out and tried to kill a Hydra that had attacked the city, succeeding in attacking it and ruining the bounty contract uh, for a group of adventurers from the Slayer's Take. Who the, uh, the the that group then took them to the Slayer's Take, where they were said, okay, either you get arrested and we take you to court for breaking this contract, or you become you join Slayer's Take and become members, and that uh, pays back your debt. Mm-hmm. Um, so they decided to go with that with the the latter rather than the former, um, and have come back the next day. Uh, half of them have come, part of them have come back the next day to team up with uh, other. Uh, Slayers take hopefuls. So, morning finds Vox Machina waking and they're in their rooms at the inn. They make their way downstairs, knowing that today is the day that they will be split up. The twins each take a shot, and with a hug, part ways for the time being. As they leave, Percy asks if they take a short detour so that he may tinker with them a little something. They're able to locate a burned-out smithy, where Percy manages to create a rough canister-shaped item, which he fills with black powder to act as a thrown explosive, which he shoots it, with, which he... Uh, when he shoots it with a round. So he throws the container and fires at it and explodes, basically. He made a he made a makeshift grenade. 
really, he made a can full of gunpowder that he would then shoot to turn into a makeshift grenade. Uh, with that done, and really they are a little late. Scanlan, Percy, Vex, and Grog night their way up to the Slayer's Take Hall. The heroes are late on their very first day of school. Uh, <laughs> that's a that's a common trope in in in, uh, in anime. Um, yep, it does. It's my... a common trope in a lot of high school sort of fiction. Yep. Um. Anyways. Uh, where was... Oh, yes. Uh, As they are chastised for being late, they are introduced to the other hopeful that will be joining them. From the back of the room walks in a red-skinned tiefling with a long black coat. uh, A long black coat and stark white hair. Uh, She has silver eyes uh, and a tail whipping around nervously. Uh, She introduced herself as Zara Hydrus, a warlock who carries a long staff that has four dragon heads clutching a large moonstone. Very Dragon Age... uh, style of staff. Um, she checks out the room and Vex instantly dislikes her. Um, yes. <laughs> yes, she does. Yep. As they become acquainted, the final member of the group, designated the leader by the Huntmaster, stumbles into the guild hall, spraying papaya all over the floor. Uh, Lyra, played by Felicia Day, uh, introduces herself to the group. Uh, and Grog and Trinket dive into the food on the floor. Uh, uh, Lyra is a human wizard, and at first glance would be called bookish at best and nerdy at worst. Um, with uh, even Scanlan is shocked at how little the woman seems to know about combat, uh, because they, they do have a conversation here about their respective skills, trying to sort of suss out what each other knows, and it becomes very apparent that Lyra doesn't have a whole lot of experience with the whole killing monsters bit. Not so much. Not um, a ton. And I don't remember, was there a specific interaction between uh, Zarya, Zara and, and Vex, or was it just Vex oh, saying... Oh, no, there was like some her. back and forth. Yeah, there, there was there some back was, and forth, yeah. Mm-hmm. There was some back and forth, forth, and Zara makes a great little entrance of sort of the haughty, dismissive kind of... Um, I haven't heard of you. I haven't heard of you. I haven't heard of you. But I have heard of you talking to Grog. Um, it's a nice little, um, sort of nice way to to immediately shake up the status quo because you've got these this group of of you know our our main protagonists who yes they they you know snark at each other and and have have good natured qualms and the like. Um, but but they're all usually pretty much on the same page, and and we know they're really good friends at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, bringing in Zara um, uh, for at least that moment when when she first comes in is a nice way to really emphasize that you know this is not going to be our 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 usual group uh, in a good way, and then adding Lyra in with her complete. Lack of 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 skill at much of anything initially is how it appears because she she steps in at first and like the first thing she does is is trip and papaya flies everywhere and 
Yeah, she, she just immediately totally bites starts, it right on the yeah. floor. Yeah. And she immediately makes it very, very clear that she is not a seasoned adventurer. Um, and that she is a little ball of, of, of naivety and anxiety. And it, it's, it's obvious that this is going to be something very different and in a very entertaining way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's also an excellent in- entrance, I think, for Zara particularly, because one thing that can be easy for beginning writers and, and creators to do is decide that they want to have a new character introduced, but they don't and, – and it's a character who doesn't have a connection with the rest of the existing characters currently – and it's sort of introduced in a, well, here's so-and-so, and this is what they do, without giving them a connection to the existing characters that the viewer or the reader is already familiar with. Mm-hmm. Zara is introduced, and while she doesn't have a connection, her initial interactions with the group immediately provoke very strong reactions that then form their perspectives on this character, at least in the short term, very, very quickly. Yeah. And that's, I would say, that is a fundamental thing to learn how to do when you're going to be bringing characters in to an an already running storyline, because giving them a level of connection, whether negative or positive, something that either shows that the characters you already care about that are sort of serving as your point of view have a perspective on this new person, whether mm-hmm. whatever whatever level of perspective that is, rather than them just being something else thrown into the bucket and just sort of rattling around until things eventually might or might not happen to give them their own sort of place in the the group, more or less. Yeah, yeah. absolutely, and that's something. When you introduce new characters like this for for uh, a part way into a storyline, your your audience is already very well attached. Hopefully, if you've done it right, to uh, to the characters that you have so far. So you need to do something to put these characters, if you want them, on equity with the other with the rest of the with the rest of the characters. You need to do something. To really make that up, the the sort of big entrance. You can go too much with that, and people tend to do that more than they do to undersell it. Mm-hmm. But you definitely want to give them uh, mm-hmm. a moment in their introduction where they really get to shine. Whether it's um, uh, Walking Dead is a great example when they brought uh, Michonne in the first time in the TV show. Yeah, I mean that's the it. It was this moment at the end of I think it was season two, um, yes. yep. where she that was you know despite everything that had happened in like the final three episodes and those were some big three episodes. Um, that was the moment that everybody was talking about, and not just because. It was the final moment of the. Uh, it was the final scene of the episode, and that she, went a long got, way. She actually had the final scene of the season, didn't she? Yeah. Yes. So. Yes. Yeah. And that went a long way to that character being quickly accepted as a core part of the part of the group. Where if you had been introduced in a more understated way, it's 
with a cat with an ensemble cast or, or ensemble group of characters, it's very difficult for those characters to really make impressions. Yeah. yeah with, and when and you're, talk when about you're... almost overdoing it, but stopping just shy of the line. Michonne's yeah. introduction is one of the best. Yeah. 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 When you, especially when you, whenever you're introducing a new character, be it a guest character or a uh, ongoing new addition to the roster, uh, you never want them to come out like on screen dully without making an impact. Right. They have to make a splash to draw attention and to remain relevant. Um, it, 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 it makes me think of actually, um, this is a little bit strange, but in the Avengers, in mm-hmm. uh, the Avengers Civil War, when they brought in all of these side characters that haven't yet in the current status of the Marvel Cinematic Universe had a whole lot of runtime yet, um, like Spider-Man and Ant-Man, the first thing they did with Spider-Man was have him uh, kick Captain America off screen. Well, no, like not the, the first thing. Well, I'm talking about the, yeah. in the trailers. In yes, the trailers, in the trailers. The first time yeah. we saw... The first time we ever saw Spider-Man as part of the Avengers, the very first thing we saw him do was kick Captain America off screen and take his shield. Yep. Um, which, that is how you introduce a character to the series. Now, he had a different introduction in the movies, but in movie storytelling, when you're adding characters, typically that reveal happens before the movie ever comes out, which is right. why I'm referencing the trailer, because that right. is what makes people buy in and invest into seeing uh, his bit in the movie. And he didn't have too terribly large a bit in the actual movie, but that, that entrance, that introduction to this Spider-Man, this particular one, made people more interested in seeing him in the movie and subsequently in his uh, in Homecoming, which comes out in a couple weeks. Uh, yep, just a little bit over a week at this point. Yeah, and yeah, that was and and that was actually a good example of in movie as well because he is, and I love Civil. It's one of my top probably three of the Marvel Cinematic Universe films so far. Um, But his part in it was just fantastic, just in terms of getting the character right. But but in a bigger way, his participation in the big fight scene that happens. Yes. Yeah. Um, And that was something that Marvel was, was going into with a challenge because of whether people like them or not, the, the, the Garfield Spider-Man films were viewed largely as a disappointment. Yeah. Um, so they had to, and this is going to be the thir- the second reboot of the character in like five years. Yeah. Um, so they needed to give audiences a reason to say, why should be, on, why should I be on board with yet another Spider-Man? Right. Um, yeah. And, before and, they and launched this, him into his own movie. And so, so in this instance, they were not only uh, introducing him to the world of the Avengers, they were also introducing him to his, potentially his own movie. Yep. Uh, using, and, and I think they, I think in, in Civil War, they actually got it right. As opposed to in the same property, I can't think of his, I can't think of the, the, his, the character's name, which tells you how poorly they did on the introduction to him, but the guy, the Captain America sidekick with the hawk suit. Falcon? Falcon? Falcon. His introduction, his introduction <laughs> in the movie, like he has a character who's fantastic in the movie, but his introduction wasn't nearly, I feel, as big as it should have been. 
No, it wasn't. It wasn't very impactful because the, they introduce him in Winter Soldier as just a guy who may, who who becomes friends with with. Well, I mean, Cap he does Falcon stuff left. in Winter Soldier. But. Yes, no, absolutely. Um, but but your in your first moments of seeing him, yeah, um, were him jogging around uh, with, with whatever the track was or whatever the scene was. And being passed by 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 Cap, being literally made to 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 be second best to Captain America, which yeah, be, right. he is the sidekick, so that makes sense. But yeah, it it was as characters to, great, but it was it was not as, nearly as impactful of a sequence as yeah, as Spider Man's entrance was. Um, whereas a, a, a going doing superheroes of a a very poor example. Of introducing new characters is is uh, uh, Batman versus Superman, and I'm not talking yes. about Wonder Woman because she was fantastic. But the <laughs> no, Batman was fine in it. Uh, His introduction. <laughs> I was gonna say. I was gonna say honestly that given the the since we've been talking about the second reboot of Spider-Man within five mm-hmm. years, and they've managed to project it to where you actually care about this Spider-Man. I was going right. to say on the other side, Marvel, or I mean, DC did not do that with the new Batman. No, there, I don't feel like it was portrayed in a way that I was like, anybody really was, Oh wow. Yeah. Let's go see Ben Affleck. Try Batman. You know, everybody yeah. was just like, Oh God, and, they've got another Batman. You know? And their first, and their their first real misstep with this. And this is this is important for writers, marketers, everybody that works in in, in, in any sort of industry or revolving around narrative storytelling. You're just like in interviews and dates. Your first impression is a lasting impression. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> yes. the first impression we got of Ben Affleck's Batman was him standing in a muscle suit, looking down at his toes like he had just been <laughs> scolded by somebody. Yeah, that was such a. That was such a poor picture. Which is not um, a a good picture. B a good look. C going to sell tickets. See, I didn't <laughs> mind Batman's introduction in that because the first time we see him, he's not Batman. He's Bruce Wayne, and that sequence where he, they 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 flash back to the destruction of Metropolis was one of the things in the movie that I really really liked. Mm-hmm. Um, the one I was going to talk about was the introduction of all the other Justice Leaguers. Oh, um, in that oh, with with their with their shitty uh, in that security badly shoehorned <laughs> security camera thing with um, a really murky video of, of of Aquaman and the Flash just getting just like I don't think actual uh, convenience store security footage looks that bad. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like that was like a, a really, really poor way to introduce those characters. Um and and Cyborg too. Um now with with changing this up uh, slightly, I wanna I wanna talk to you guys about uh doing the very same thing but in narrative D and D campaigns. Mm-hmm. Um bring in new players or new characters. Say that uh, somebody's character died and they have to bring in a new one. Or conversely, uh a new player is added to your session and you have to introduce this person to the group. Um, right. that can be just as challenging. Uh, and, yeah, some, and in some ways more challenging 
uh, to bring it in because it's, it's two people writing one, one character that only one of them is going to portray. Um, mm-hmm. So what are some of the challenges that you guys face in that realm where uh, trying to bring in a new player or a new character in general? New character is interesting because you've already set a certain level of expectation for your from from your first character. Um yeah. and whether that expectation <laughs> assuming that that character was a was was a well received one and not just okay I played this character for a couple sessions he's really not working out let's let's bring in somebody else. If it's somebody that's if it's a character that you know, fits in well with the rest of the group and is, is, is well received by the other players. There is an expectation laid upon you for your night for, for who's going to replace that character. And that's sort of a, an interesting thing to kind of deal with. Um, and it can be a little complicated as well because the, you're only changing half of what's being used in the group because right. you're 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 giving a player a new character but the player is still the same player so it's not the same as bringing in an entirely new character on pretty much any other level yeah. of or type of storytelling because in a sense visually at least nothing has changed more or less yeah but right. but in terms of the the imaginary headspace that we're all operating in you've got somebody who is brand new Whereas the player has probably had time to build rapport and have a background and have connections with the other people playing around the table, this character has had none of that. And mm-hmm. so it can be it can be difficult sometimes for groups to adjust to that because they're still playing with the same person they've been playing with. So they have that connection, but they, now their characters have to suddenly interact with this player's character on a completely different level now than yeah. they've been and used it, to and then that the, the, the pattern has established. So the adjustment mm-hmm. can be difficult, um, and I think that that's a good thing to sort of, especially for people who are new to the role-playing scenario, have a conversation with them about and say, you know, hey, you know, look, you guys have been playing the game all together for X amount of time. You've got your own inside jokes. You got have your own, you know, sort of rapport and patterns of interaction that you have. You're going to have to change that with so-and-so now. Right. I mean, there's a whole bunch of things as far as that goes. Right. Um, I know, like, my my uh, in-person tabletop group is, the best way I will put it, is there can be a lot of jokes that are made that I would never make with, with the Final Show Films group. <laughs> for a variety of reasons, you know, sensitivity reasons, but but not just that. Um, I'm, I'm, how many Holocaust jokes do you make? <laughs> there have been a few. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to find the upper limit on our end, and I'm not finding. I mean, it, so. there, there there have been a few, and. There is subject matter, I think, that, that you have to take a lot of that stuff into account. Mm-hmm. Um, so introducing a introducing a player to the to a session is that first session can really be sort of if it's somebody that you that everybody knows and everybody's really friendly with, it's a lot easier, obviously. Um, and I think that tends to be more of the case, at least in my experience. 
Um, but you do have times where there's somebody who, you know, doesn't necessarily, you know, no, hasn't even necessarily played role-playing games before. And at that point, it's sort of a feeling out for that first session. So you don't want to, the rest of the groups can sometimes feel like a, um, like they don't want to come on too strong or, you know, do something necessarily. Hopefully they're feeling this way uh, to make the, make the new player uncomfortable. Uh, and then a lot of times after 10 minutes, you know, clearly everything's clicked and they're right in with the group. Um, uh, but with, I had something I was going to say about player in, or the character introduction building off Jack, what Jack said, but I can't remember it. So, so, uh, I think in terms of to, to sort of again reel it back, in terms of uh, narratively introducing mm-hmm. these characters, uh, I find that for me personally, it's best to have have a reason for the character to become invested yes. with the group. That was what um, I was going to say. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, because it, it it and and you that's a little bit harder to do depending on the player that you're working with. So it's yes. important to it's right. important to try to you know, thoroughly explain that yet while this is a good idea and I don't want to restrict your creativity, I need to have a reason for you to be in this group. Yes. Players to any other number of possible adventuring parties that are out there who could help you find the things that were stolen from your family. You know, players like there are create a character that you can have work like go along with what you already know the storyline to be. Or or if you're a new player joining in talk with the GM and say, okay, yes. where are they at? What have they been doing? What's sort of the situation that I'm about to find myself in? How do I get tied in? Which, mm-hmm. uh, going back to Critical Role, you know, they had a very clear and easy thing here. It's like, oh, well, mm-hmm. you know, you guys are joining the Slayer's Take. Well, these characters are also trying to join the Slayer's Take, so you have a reason to be together. Right. After that, you're, you have a goal in unison that you are all trying to accomplish. You're all in Murder Hobo High School, and you are doing group <laughs> projects. Congratulations. Yeah. yeah, and that's – I know a lot of people – when you've got – when you have a, 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 a diverse group of players in terms of their experience level and what kind of gameplay they appreciate, you have a diverse level of – the amount of detail that people put into their backstories. Um, I know I tend to be fairly extensive with mine, but I also recognize that that's not necessarily the case with everybody. And a little, um, bit, of, a little bit of insight, the folks at Fire Show Films have a wide variety of what they feel is a good backstory. Yeah, and that's, <laughs> and that's fine. And I have um, to read it all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've written a backstory that when I've actually written backstories, Quinn didn't have a backstory, not, not actually written down. But outside of that, when I actually do have a backstory, I don't think I've written one that's less than 1500 words in no, many, 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 many years. No, um, haven't. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas on the other I, side, mine tend to be fairly succinct, I think. Yeah. I try to stick to four paragraphs. Yeah. If I can't tell the story in four paragraphs, I need to cut because at that point I'm putting too much information in for the GM to, to have to stick to. 
I don't feel like there's a such thing as too much information. <laughs> Not when it comes to character backstories, because every single bit of that information for me as a DM is a potential hook. Yeah. Um, yeah I, I don't mind long backstories as a rule. I just tend to not have super long ones for my characters that I play. Yeah. But, but yeah, when somebody gives me like four pages of backstory for their character, I break out a mental highlighter, man, and I'm going to <laughs> town on that shit. Yep. I, I, I also only I'll be I able also to, tend jank, to yank their chain on this and on this and on I also, this. <laughs> I, also, I also tend to write not more than four paragraphs uh, in a backstory because I have ADHD and it's hard for me to focus. That's fair, too. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's totally fair. I'm just. Uh, I get out all of my sadistic tendencies when I'm writing my backstory. So, <laughs> so yeah. Uh, so so to, to sum up this particular tangent, um, yes, it, there are two the, the two things that you need to do when you're making it when you're having a new character enter into a situation. You have to a make a splash. They have mm-hmm. to make an immediate visceral impact within, say, thirty seconds to two minutes of their introduction. Typically, in a, in a narrative, in a narrative sense, D and D might take a little bit longer, but you have to. There has to be an impact, a reason for us to care, and then there has to be a reason for that character to be with the group of whatever group it is. In Spider-Man's case, he was with the Avengers because Tony Stark said, "Hey." You're smart. Come with me. And he idolizes Tony Stark. And that's enough. Um, In fact, we now know that he was actually, he was the kid in Iron Man 2 in the Iron Man mask. Yeah. Like, there is, that that alone is enough of a hook to have him with the group, with the party, and and excited to be there. And when he was first introduced, he made a splash. He kicked Captain America, title character, off the fucking screen. (laughs) Like yep. that, that you don't get a bigger splash than that. Um, now, one one thing on a sort of addendum to the D to 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 the actual role playing part of it. Yeah. Um, introduction of NPCs that are going to be major NPCs. Um, this I tend to find is more of a delicate balance because obviously you want your NPCs to make an impact. Yeah. You want them to really make a strong impression the first time. My number one pet peeve is uh, as a player is when the NPCs take over the story though. Yes. (laughs) And solve a problem that the PCs could have handled on their own. You know, it's one thing to have them come in and like, you know, there there's the, the DM has set up a situation where everything looks really dark for the PCs and then the NPC comes in to save the day for this one time. Um, Yeah, a one-off isn't necessarily too bad, but you want to have the NPC generally, at least in my experience, make a splash without overshadowing the party. Yes. Um, Or or force the party into a decision. Or force the party into a decision, or Yeah. yeah. Like if the party's watching a group of people about to commit some horrible act, uh, some horrible atrocity, and you throw an NPC at the group, at the, at the at the people starting a fight, right? Things like that. Yeah, no, you you definitely want to avoid that kind of stuff because ultimately the NPCs are should never ever ever be the main stars. No, no. even for just even for just a scene. I don't think I don't feel um, like they ever should be. 
Uh, and I, it, for me in particular, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't mind NPCs being active, like you oh, know, no, like having fine. an active NPC having a thing. The thing that bugs me the most um, is when people write NPCs that become plot crucial, and not only just plot crucial, but um, like like. When when you have the super powered NPC that mm-hmm. uh, that is carrying the party, right? yes, like and 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 in some in some some people there there's there's some argument for you know oh well if you're making the you know if you're making the thing to a certain level then you have to have these NPCs there to make sure the player characters can get through it. And my response to that is then why did you make the that particular section or encounter that difficult? Right, right. They can be um, crucial to plot in a narrative way. But you don't want them because to necessarily let's be honest, mechanically yeah. carrying the party. Exactly. Because yeah. let's be honest, to, to if you have plot in a D and D game, there are NPCs who are going to be crucial to the story. Yeah, no, yeah. Uh, that, mm-hmm. they're going to be pivot points, but they shouldn't be. Yeah, they shouldn't be. I mean, mechanically necessary crucial. to allow the characters to survive an encounter. Yeah, right. no, you don't. You don't tack a level twenty NPC alongside a level five party so that he can take care of all the problems for them. Right. That's that's just that that's lazy encounter building. Yes. That oh says God, yes. T- to me that says I didn't balance this like that that says I didn't balance this fight for the party, so I needed to add higher level NPCs to make the fight evenly balanced. Yeah. See that says one um, of two things to me. Either that or this is the PC I've always wanted to play, so I'm going to throw him into this moment. I mean I do that, but they're typically villains. <laughs> <laughs> I did get to play Corlin later, though, so that was fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, uh, it, it, there, there is certainly a fine line to draw with NPCs, and I find that it's fine if they fly in and do a narrative uh, and do a narrative, big, big narrative swooping fireworks display mm-hmm. uh, but, but once the fight starts either they're just as powerful if not slightly weaker than the rest of the party or they don't do much like they sit locked in locked in battle with one guy for the entirety of the fight or whatever um and and right. so everybody else that way that you still get that you know you still get that cool super npc narrative moment for you as the gm but the players still have a thing to do i.e. yeah cool uh level 20 guy is fighting level 20 guy over there there's still these other there's still these 105 level 10s that we need to deal with yeah you know and so you, you get your you get your set piece and the players are still important you should um, never have the "you shall not pass" moment in a no, role-playing game. Not uh, with NPCs. <laughs> not within. Correct. Not with NPCs. Like if a player character wants to have a "you shall not pass" moment, by all means. Right. Um. Yeah. That, that's. And and that's one of those things that doesn't really cross over to any other genre because everybody in the movie is an NPC. Um. But, but yeah. yes, but. No, no, it it does transfer over because, like I said, NPCs should not be the protagonists. So there is a real danger, and I've seen it happen in many, many a fantasy book. Um, not so much, 
not so much in uh, uh, live action. I, I guess there's a couple. There's a there's a couple examples, but there is. Uh, it's very very easy to focus too much on your supporting characters to the detriment of your, oh. your protagonist. I think actually, I actually, no, no, actually, I have a great example. Yes. I literally was thinking about that. As I <laughs> yeah. Jack Sparrow I, is the perfect example of that where he was great as a side character in, you know, important, significant film time, but not, not the protagonist in Curse of the Black Pearl. Um, right. and there's a reason, even there's a, reason it, there's a reason it's called Romeo and Juliet, not the adventures of Mercutio. Right. And even the second and third, he was still, he was still sort of more of a side character. Mm-hmm. Um, even if he got increased screen time and obviously that's where the marketing went. Um, right. but by the time that, that on stranger tides rolled around and it's less of a problem in the most recent one, but, but it's still there a little bit. <clears throat> um, Disney had, you know, Orlando Bloom and Karen Knightley didn't want to come back. So they made Jack Sparrow the star and put in two characters who you simply did not care about in terms of for for a new uh, uh, Will Turner and Elizabeth Swan. Elizabeth Swan. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's why there are three great Pirates of the Caribbean movies. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> yep. So, returning back to the story at hand. Um, <laughs> the team is presented with a uh, few healing potions as well as a bag to store the parts of the beast that they are to slay in. Vex and Zara have a short debate as to who should take the bag. In the end, engage in, an in, 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 in the ancient art of Rochambeau, uh, which Vex wins. And, and they didn't call it they didn't call it uh, Boulder Parchment Shears until much later, correct? Right. Correct. Okay, because they, they just called it Rock, Paper, Scissors here. Um, uh, Vex wins and puts the bag across his shoulders. As Grog wants to slash himself with his great axe because Lyra will stop talking, Vanessa hands out the contract that has been selected for them. Uh, she hits to Percy, who reads it over, and determines that, it, that they are to kill one adult white dragon. Amid protests and complaints, they set out to try and find information on their quarry before the three-day time time limit expires. The group breaks into two smaller parties and begins asking around about dragons. Vex, Scalum, and Lyra manage to run into a man named Dagon, who is a bit of a local legend in his own mind, uh, that claims to have seen dragons before. As the group takes a seat at the bar and the man begins to tell his tale, many of the bars scoff and yell insults at him. And he tells the story of being surrounded by dire wolves and the dragon dropping down on the beasts and eating it as Vex compliments his dagger size to keep him talking. Uh, based on the information, however sketchy it was, they decided to head to the north and, uh, and mountains located there. Uh, they have two more stops before, uh, uh, they have two more stops to make before heading out on their trek. First, they have delivery to get horses to make a journey a bit easier. This is the, uh, we need to mount up scene. Um, i.e. providing your adventurers with modes of transportation. It is worth noting, you can't Walk everywhere. No, you can't. <laughs> this is true. So here's actually uh, here's actually another good spot to, to, to break. I noticed that in a lot of movies and TV shows and books, 
they really gloss over transportation. It's only really in D and D. Not in Indiana Jones, they don't. In Indiana Jones, they don't. I said a lot of, not all. <laughs> a lot of, not all. Right. They really gloss over transportation, which I find fascinating from a writer's perspective because that is literally your transition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is physically, functionally in the movie, your transition. And everyone knows that transitions are important. You need to have good transitions to keep the story going. So why do so many writers, narr- writers, both for film, TV, and books, gloss over transportation? I Most mean, I have, I, have a, I have an answer. Go, what's, I, what's the answer? Uh, Lord of the Rings. It does it so poorly. <laughs> there are a lot of things I love about the Lord of the Rings franchise. And I would... J.R. Tolkien is the man and deserves all of the accolades that he ever got and then gets post-mortem and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But as much as I love those movies, I can't stand the books um, because of the writing style and because of the way that Tolkien focuses on that stuff. And the complaints about the film being three hours of walking are obviously over-exaggerated, but in some ways valid. But you also have to but you also have to consider the era in which that work was created. It was of the course. height of adventure fiction. It was the height it's when you had people like Edgar Rice Burroughs and crap, who wrote all the uh, Alan Quartermain stuff, you know, where the idea of exploration was still fun kind of fundamentally uh, coherent in the the public paradigm at the the time, you know, you have uh, people like be, Shackleton going out. Uh, that would bit, be li- uh, Haggard. Haggard. Yes, thank you. Yeah, um, you know, right. But the idea that literally getting from one place to another could be an adventure in and of itself, mm-hmm. and you know, I've obviously you've got naturally a. Still very problematic, but still you've got the sort of imperialist colonial mindset that most of Western uh, literature and Western society are invested in at the time. Um, You know, and taking it across the pond, you know, America is still kind of moving west, even at those Mm -hmm. later stages, Um, you know, and the, the idea of building and pioneering and moving from where you've been to where you want to go. You've got entire genres built around the concept of the travelogue, um, and so it's something that was a very crucial aspect of a lot of the fiction that was created in those times. Oh, of course, I'm not. Um, I'm know. not. I'm not trying to say that. Well, I. I do think that the writing style of Lord of the Rings is terrible. Well, and but, right, yeah, Lord of the Rings is basically a hey, can you make a history for all these weird languages? You're yes, up? exactly. Right. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I'm not. I'm not saying that it was uh, I, that I it's read, poorly I, done I, at that time. I read all the Lord of the Rings books from cover to cover when I was less than twelve years old and loved mm-hmm. every bit of them. So. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, uh... <laughs> and not every yeah no t- tastes do vary, and yes. all of us will admit that. But, but the you idea also have to, right. mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, all the people that all the people that are storytellers today, like us, grew up reading those books and fell in love with the stories, and probably did not fall in love with the with with the specifics of the journey part of the stories. Um. It was the characters and, and, and the storyline and all of that kind of stuff. So 
right for right or wrong and i know there's a lot of valid arguments on the side i think that's why um uh travel part of transition is generally lost unless that's the focus of the storyline yeah right yeah cuz cuz you could you could obviously say oh what about driver or what about transporter or what about murder on uh, the orient express murder on the orient express or what about uh, the Fast and Furious movies, but mm-hmm. it's not. It's not what I what I'm specifically referring to is not vehicles or modes of transportation right. no. as like, a automobiles. <laughs> I'm talking about it as setting, as set dressing, right? Um, because there's this tendency uh, in lots of in lots of modern writing to sort of hand wave transportation. Characters walk off screen, then you get a nice established shot of a building, and you see them walking into the building. Yep. And you never really see the point A to point B portion of it. And that's unless, why... unless unless it's set in New York City, in which case there will be too many scenes in taxi cabs. I guarantee it. Well, yes. yeah. Well, that's the thing. Is like <laughs> a lot but again, of but again, it's 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 not because we need to show the characters getting from point A to point B. It's because we need to remind everybody we're in New York City. Right. Well, I find that. The solution that I most enjoy is something that – and I find that this happens in a lot of the movies that I enjoy. Some of my favorite movies, things like you know, Lucky Number Slevin and, and the like, um, they use the transition of transportation to further the story and to, mm-hmm. and to mm-hmm. further add implication. Um, for, for instance, um, in, in, in one of the very early scenes when they're establishing I've, – I've, I've written many, many a thesis and, and paper and PowerPoint on Lucky Number 11. But um, in one of the very – it's a fantastic movie. It's yeah. A te- technically, one of my top like, – like it's one of my top three movies uh, mm-hmm. currently, uh, especially in the, in the realm of cinematography. But um, uh, in very early on, there's a scene where the, the character of Slevin is sort of getting his ass handed to him by these two thugs that have come to pick him up, air quotes. Um, and they, they're telling him how he's going to come with them no matter, you know, and if, if he says one more thing, he's going to break his fucking nose. And, and uh, the guy sort of stands back, Slevin sort of stands back up and says, my nose is already broken. You hear the you hear the meaty crunch of a fist in the face, and then it immediately cuts to him in the back seat of a car with a sec- with, with his nose broken a second time as right. they're traveling. And then they use the scene of him in the car to explain a little bit more about what's going on. And they they use that natural progression of time of travel to provide a natural explanation of events. Mm-hmm. I find that when people skip over travel sections they tend to skip over perfect opportunities for exposition and in doing so find themselves having to cram exposition in other places where it might not be as welcome for instance you're not typically intent on on expositing towards the audience when you're in the middle of a gunfight that is not what should normally happen However, when you're in the armored car leading up to the gunfight, loading up your ammunition, that's a perfect way to break the ice. Yep. Yep. Um, now, there will and- be some production concerns in that. It is, of course, easier to film on a soundstage most of the time than inside a vehicle, particularly if the vehicle is going to be moving. And there yeah, are ways right. around that as well, you know, but there are sometimes – sometimes it is budgetary or production decision made. But yeah, no, I agree with you that from a structural standpoint – 
it's 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 a perfect time because most of the time when you're riding in a vehicle or riding on a plane or you know there's nothing to do but talk yep. if you're going to be interacting with somebody else yeah. so it's a and perfect it, location for it for and that's it, for one of the reasons that's one of the reasons that um i love eberron as a setting so much because Faroon, don't get me wrong Faroon is amazing uh, uh Kryn is amazing um but those one those those settings tend to focus a lot more on this setting or on on the the, the location. Eberron goes out of its way to have lightning rails, airships, uh, mage bred steeds, um, uh, 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 naval voyages. Um, things to bring your transit a little closer to an advanced society. And not just bring it to an advanced society, but make it something that your players want, don't want to just skip past. Right. Yeah. No, if you're, if you're, if you're riding horses from, uh, from one location to another, okay, you guys ride along or you're on foot or whatever. Okay, let's roll for some random encounters. Whereas if you're taking an airship across the continent, your players are going to want to have some fun with that. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's, coming coming back to Indiana Jones again. Yeah. Cause if you, when you look at his, his options, the, as they're putting that story together, anytime Indy is going from one place to another, it is very, very rarely any sort of generic travel technique that he's using. You know, he's on a, well, he's on an air, he's on, he's on the freaking Hindenburg. He's, he, yeah. he hijacks a plane that belongs to somebody who actually wants him dead and he doesn't realize it. Uh, he holds on to the exterior of a submarine across the Mediterranean, yeah, say, you know, things like does, that. Even if he does have <laughs> one of the worst plot holes in the history of cinema. <laughs> and, and. They, when they don't have him talking to anybody for exhibition, they put his travel plan on a map as transition. Yeah, like I think in Indiana Jones is one of the best examples of it. They literally make his traveling transitionary material. Mm-hmm. Going from scene to scene, they pull up the map, they put the red dot, and they draw the second red line. Everybody listening yep. to this has ever seen an Indiana Jones movie can picture it in their mind right now, and that's sort of an iconic thing. Um, I know in going back to D and D, it's a little bit harder because, you, like you said, unless you're unless you're in a setting that has trains, planes, and automobiles, um, you you have that issue of, okay, you guys are gonna be traveling for three days. What do you want to do? Nothing. Okay. <laughs> okay. Moving on. Three days First later, night. you get there. <laughs> three days later, you get there, and and so you, it's it's difficult <laughs> to sort of deal with bugbears then. <laughs> yeah, or owl bears. Like, here's 15 bugbears in a small room. Enjoy. <laughs> um, the and so it, it's it's it is it is there, there's sort of a difficult there's sort of a bit of a give and take uh, in that moment. But players, when you're given time to travel, that's fantastic for you. That's 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 talk about our plan. Talk about right. what's happening next. Talk about that, you know, in-character dramatic issue that we had in the last village. Uh-huh. Talk about our talk about our bard who keeps getting himself kicked out of whorehouses. 
Talk about our barbarian who keeps instigating fights in whorehouses. Talk about our talk about our cleric that keeps getting punched in the face by whores. Like like I don't know why I'm stuck on that one piece. But, um, but well, you know, you know it happens. But yeah, like there there are like there are all there are that is giving you implicit downtime when a when a GM says, "Hey, you're gonna be traveling for three days. What do you want to do?" What do you want to – what does your character need to do? Do they want – here's something that never happens. You never have at – on night one, I wander off. When's the last time – think about that. When's the last time when, when you had players or when you were a player and you were traveling from point A to point B, it's going to take several days or a week, and you said, you know what? I go off into the woods to take a piss. And then something catches my eye, and I follow it. Uh, Mayosuchi. Did it happen? Yes. No, it absolutely did. (laughs) I totally, like, yeah, no, because Fakir had seen, like, weird shit in the sky, and it was like, okay, you're on watch. Great. I go look at that shit. That's right. Yeah. You (laughs) didn't do that. Aren't aren't you on watch? Yeah, but I'm ignoring that because that's cool shit over there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Not so to like, not to get too self congratulatory, but I think that that game was a really good example of us having a lot of fun with the downtime. Yeah, um, no, you guys, it was watching, you guys got into fights on downtime. It was great. We would get into fights, or we would have, you know, <clears throat> twenty minute long conversations between two characters during watches. Or, I mean, we decided. I, I'm pretty sure. Uh, we all decided our watch, who, what watch we were doing based on who we wanted to talk to next. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> you did. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and, that, and that's great. Like, and, and like, like that is where you can start making your own little story beats. Yes. Uh, narratively. Like it doesn't have to be world ending stuff, but maybe you, maybe, maybe you, uh, as a player, you wander off into the woods one night to maybe get some. Maybe you're a little bit extra hungry. You've been traveling for a while. You've been rationing, and you just want a meal. Think about that. Everybody listening for a moment. Think about uh, a day when you have had a day where you've just got off work and you've got food at the house, but you're hungry for something that you don't have at the house, and so you go out to get food. Now take that feeling and take that emotion, that event, um, and put it in a fantasy world. Where you've been eating the same rations for the past three days, and you've got another three days before you get to a place where you can actually order some tavern food. And it's the middle of the night, you're on watch, you're awake, you're hungry, but you don't want to eat the fucking rations again. (laughs) For the 15th time, I don't want to eat fucking traveler's elf bread. Yeah, one bite makes you full. Yeah, one fucking bite does make you full. It all tastes the same. (laughs) Right. Goddamn good berries. Like you can only eat so many good berries. Um, so you, so I'm hungry. I'm going to go hunt a boar. We're in a forest. It's a forest here. I'm going to go hunt a pig or a boar or something to keep myself from going insane, murdering the five sleeping people next to me. Because I guarantee they taste different than rations. They do. <laughs> so, uh... so you go out into the woods. And, and and if Jeremy thinks this isn't going to happen the minute like the next time we have stuff to do like have this traveling for a week he's fooling himself. Um, I'm just saying I didn't realize that Seth was going to get a taste for long pork. I know, right? <laughs> um, 
and 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 now you've got a character wandering off in the woods in the middle of the night and maybe he stumbles upon a cave maybe he stumbles upon another little extra side area that didn't exist prior now you've created your own little bit of story that has made that a guarantee you that's gonna be a more memorable night on the road than the last yeah. three nights that you haven't done anything and, you know, there's a really good chance that your DM might not be, you know, might not really know what to do with that, and they just sort of let you do what you want. But there, are t- there there's always a, a chance, probably even a good chance, that they're going to be like, I have this plot sequence. I don't know how to introduce it. Oh, my God. Thank you, this PC, because you've just given me the opportunity. And yeah. and it's it's a thing where even if they don't do anything with it, you have now told them, hey, yes. I am willing to do weird off-the-side angle stuff during our downtime. You can come up with stuff that can happen here. Right. Like you've given, the, you've given your GM the okay to do that. And GMs always give your players that option, you know? Mm-hmm. You don't necessarily have to tell them, but say, hey, what are you doing? You've got three days. Like... Give them that option, and maybe they'll surprise you. Players surprise your GMs. They love it when you surprise them. Yes. Yep. Um, all of that off of them. Walking Shadow the would have been over two months ago if you guys had, didn't keep surprising me. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> uh, so back to our story at hand. Uh, they got horses. Uh, they arrive and have a they arrive and have a short debate over rental versus purchase. And as they talk, Zara casts a quick suggestion spell and helps ease the man's mind to get them the horses at a bit of a discount and without a deposit. Vex worries about Trinket keeping up. Scanlan, as usual, suggests leaving the bear behind. Much too loud protests from the ranger. Sorry, um, who's the bear behind? Uh, Vex's bear. <laughs> and that was a nice moment, also, to. You know, since she came in a little bit adversarial, that was a nice moment to for for Zara to sort of break the ice with the group, particularly towards Vex because she got a discount. Anytime, um, you, anytime you save money, Vex is happy. Exactly, and it sort of led to 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 what happens later in the episode. But it was a nice way after is really well, I not scripted but scripted um, in terms of. Okay, this character has come in. She's definitely made her impression. Now here's where she starts to transition into becoming an actual part of the group. Yeah, that I appreciate like this, is, this is so you've made your you've made your splash. Now make yourself useful. Yeah, and that's a, that's a big problem I think that you find with a lot of of again narrative storytelling involving ensemble cast when you introduce someone who is a little bit more adversarial. When yeah. it works well, the person writing the story or, you know, the players in the DM or whatever the case may be, um, realize that, okay, this introduction had sparks, this worked, and they want to keep them adversarial. And that only that only works for so long before they start to become a detriment to the party. Yeah, because after a while, your adversarial character lights somebody on fire that they shouldn't have lit on fire. Exactly. Like, and, right. and, and so here's a, here's a, here is a question that I, a genuine question that I got for the two of you. Um, whenever, whenever, so 
in um, narrative storytelling, mm-hmm. when you meet a character, NPC, uh, something like that, who is supposed to be a, a very powerful figure, right? Um, and you have one character who keeps trying to chest up, you know, <laughs> keeps trying to, to, to act high and mighty in the face of this character and whether or not the individual is powerful uh, or not, that's not necessarily the matter. The fact of the matter is that if you piss this character off, bad things can happen in movies. What can end up happening is someone chests up and they get slapped down as a warning, not lethally slapped down, but they get smacked down and the rest of the party goes, Ooh, we right. shouldn't do a thing. In D&D, I feel there's a tendency of if that happens, there's almost this fear or this expectation that the rest of the party is going to then take that as a cue to start fighting. Yeah. Can like, be. Uh, like, I'm thinking, like, like if in, 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 D&D, if in D&D in particular, say you were, you know, you were having a conversation with a powerful magic user and somebody just wouldn't shut up and wouldn't shut up and wouldn't shut up. And that person cast telekinesis to lift them up into the air and shut their mouth. That could be seen as a, as a, as a, like sort of a, a, a intimidation tactic. It's like, it's not right. going to hurt the person necessarily, but it's going to stop them so that the conversation can continue and you know exactly how powerful this person is. But there's also a chance of that backfiring and having the entire party suddenly go murder hobo on this character. Uh huh. How would you deal with that? Like, what would be the what would be the the way you would prevent you would have that nice story moment of a character doing a thing and not have it immediately, you know, have the have into- have the people immediately learn the wrong lesson and devolve it into a combat that didn't need to happen. I mean, a lot of that is just about player tendencies in general, obviously. Yeah. Um, you know, there has to, that's one of the things that I always say is the number one key to, to a successful D&D game is having a certain level of trust between the DM and, and the players and amongst the players of... You know, you're not going to, we're all ultimately working towards the same goal here. You know, the DM isn't actually trying to kill you all. Um, however, however, you know, forgiving the, or not forgiving they might be of player, uh, of character decisions. They're not actively doing this just so they can kill off your characters and crush your dreams. Um, and the players that, you know, Nobody's going to lead anybody into uh, the ruination of their own characters, and that the DM trusts that the players are not going to just say "fuck this storyline." I'm going off in my own direction, and you need to follow me along with it. Um, that being said, even the best people sometimes do that. Sometimes. Um, it's very situational, depending on how you handle it. I usually, if I have a character 
who, of course, you you kind of are going to anticipate, like, if you have a character who is very anti-religion, for example. Um, <laughs> who might have one of those? I am, I am not using anybody in a specific that literally and honestly just came off the top of my head as a possibility. Um, but if you, we don't have 15 of them. <laughs> right, exactly. Um <laughs> But if you have a character who's particularly anti-religion and you have a uh, a important NPC that you need to introduce who is, this is actually happening in a, in a tabletop game in a hilarious fashion. It was hilarious at the time, but then it was not. Um, but an important member of a high-ranking church within your, within your storyline. Um, you can anticipate there is probably going to be some level of conflict there. And that even if, you know, there may be the possibility, however slight, of that character enticing the re- that, that PC, enticing the rest of the party into, fuck this guy, let's just take him out and whatever, you know, so on and so on. Hmm. If I anticipate those situations, ultimately I'm the DM. I'm setting the scene. And you don't want to create a situation where it's a no-win for your party. But you can put certain things into play to prevent murder hoboing. Or at least stall it long enough for your NPC to make their point. And hopefully talk them down from trying to hit the priest over the head with a rock or whatever the case may be. I think a lot of it can come with good setup as well. Mm-hmm. When I look when I look at from a narrative perspective, when I look at a potentially or possibly uh, definitively antagonistic relationship that I need to keep in place and remain functional for a period of time, make sure there's connections on both ends. Um, I think of Spike in Buffy the Vampire Slayer for this. Um, you know, there's the fact that for a good period of the show, Spike is sort of affiliated with or associated with part of the group, but in a very antagonistic and anti-hero mm-hmm. type way. But the but he never goes and kills them, and they never say we've had enough and just go kill him because both of them need the other one. You know, right. uh, Buffy needs him for the information that he has. He's connected to, you know, the the sort of less savory characters who are affiliated with the Hellmouth and all the bad shit that goes down on Sunny in Sunnydale on a daily basis. And Spike either has a chip in his head or literally falls in love with Buffy. You know, and so it's not going to. He's not going to go aggressive against her because he can't or he is no longer in a position where emotionally that's something he'd be willing to do. Yeah. Yeah. It's still an antagonistic relationship, but there's there's a level of status quo and there's a level of stability there and until one of those things changes, it'll at least maintain the the relational inertia that it has. For D&D, I would do things similarly. If the group has to go meet with somebody that it's possible they will for whatever reason get up on their high horse or take exception to or disagree with from a philosophical perspective or whatever, to an extent where it might come to blades drawn and spells slung, make sure that the players know they need this person. 
you know, maybe he has information that they need to require that literally nobody else has, and he's the only one that knows it. Much more difficult to get information out of a dead guy. Not entirely in D&D, but still. Um, you know, and and make sure you you have everything set up in place. It doesn't have to be quite as two-way because the the characters in question aren't on equal footing. You as the GM can push it as far as you want because you have control over this guy and you know where the story's going. And when it's time for him to relent and give the characters the information or come come away from his perspectives and be willing to look at things from their point of view or something, you can just do that whenever makes sense and you're ready to. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But make sure the characters are invested. If you don't want the characters to kill somebody, make sure they're invested in keeping them alive. Um, kind of goes back to the whole idea that, you know, the, the, the natural base state of two nations is war. And the only reason you have peace is if people are invested in peace. So realize that, honestly, in conflict, particularly in a setting like D&D, where most things are settled by murdering somebody, um, it, when you boil it down to its component parts, yeah, I mean, yeah. um, right. Make sure there's a reason, a very clear, explicit, and observable, objective reason for them to try everything but killing this person. Yep. And set that up well in advance. Whoever sends them there, have them explain it, you know, or – and of course it doesn't hurt if you throw a little bit of a power jump in there. If you're going to talk to the local – the local – bishop of the temple and everybody knows he's got he's so deep in the god's pocket that he can channel holy powers and annihilate large swaths of people just when he feels like it you're gonna think twice about picking a fight with that guy and at that point if they do i mean and if they do it then it's like like i did warn you you know right but i have had situations in the past my woman my most memorable one was somebody who was playing a uh, a half orc in a, in a Forgotten Realms game, and there was a whole big storyline with with uh, the Shade Empire and such. And at one point, she convinces one of the other newer players to uh, character to go off with them and go try and hunt down the Shade Army, all thousand of them. <laughs> You take five hundred on the left. We can I'll take, take the five hundred on the right. We can take them. They're they're pushovers, really. Yeah. So it's like, all right. Uh, well, you go, you fight, you die. You die. <laughs> <laughs> you took a care. couple no, of no. them with you. We're not rolling this fight. You just died. <laughs> You take a cup. You, you roll new characters because your buddies don't know where your bodies are. <laughs> yep. Um, and you just kind of have to do that sometimes. Um, yep. But hopefully, you just have your to care- hopefully your players are not drunk when they're playing, and <laughs> and don't go that insane route of I'm going to try and do this. I don't care. All right. So, Lyra had previously mentioned that her uncle was an ambassador. Uh, but had failed to previously mention that he was primarily a trader and had warehouses full of items. 
uh, sure that they would provide them with the additional uh, equipment that they required, heavy heavy clothes, stuff that would help prevent, uh, protect them from the cold winters of the mountain, um, they went to one of the warehouses. And they were greeted by the foreman, who was not excited at all to see Lyra. And now we see a little bit of this sort of uh, almost noble character that was using her connections but didn't have uh, but their, her connections weren't as solid as she thought they were um though they mm-hmm. do still manage to get what what they need uh, the foreman leaves and comes back with heavy leathers and furs and things for them to wear uh, to keep warm as they go um he hands them off and just slams it over their faces uh, feeling uh, decently equipped and with horses in tow, they head to the north gate and ride onto the Glasswalk Road. After traveling the rest of the day down the only well-worn path through the woods, they pull off into a small clearing and begin to set up camp. Grog takes a few minutes to find some wood and makes quick work of it with his axe, and sets about rubbing sticks together to start the fire. Uh, I forget if he succeeds or if Zara just lights it for him. <laughs> uh, he does not succeed. I think Vex um, has to help him out. Vex goes and helps him out. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Vex helps him out, and then you know they have a little scene here making camp again, uh, referring back to a previous statement of make these camps something to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, this it doesn't have to be we rest. It's like okay, well I'm gonna go get wood and chop it down, go back in, start a fire, try to make a fire, roll a survival check, uh, fail to start the fire, somebody else comes over, rolls a survival check, succeed to start the fire. Um, or and it, have you know the entire party go around in a circle, failing to start a fire, and then have somebody uh, finally get pissed off enough that they firebolt it and just disintegrate the wood to ash, and you have to start all over again. Yep. Yep. And it works so well in this one because again, we we have two characters who are newly introduced, so it gives them a lot of time to get some character uh, um, interaction in, and gives them that opportunity to sort of fit within and establish their place. Um, I, I really loved, you know, Zara is, is, is fantastic throughout. I loved Lyra as a character so much because she, she's the comedy character, but she's such a different comedy character than we're used to with this group. Um, She's a very Felicia Day character. She's a oh, she is. She is oh, she is such a Felicia Day character, um, and it provided sort of something something very different. But she was still somebody that you know clearly from the get go had level of talent and and had things that you know she was she was a good reason why she was there. Um, so it. it really worked out well in terms of like we said using these 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 side moments to take these two characters and put them again on a level of equity with the rest of the group yeah um and and you know so they they take they take the evening to uh settle in uh and they set watches um, Zara and Vex first, Percy second, and Grog taking the last one. Lyra, notably, not taking any of them. Uh, as the first two watches pass, Grog hears some noises at the midpoint in his watch. And as he grabs the weapon and heads towards the darkness, the belt he wears gives him a little bit of dark vision, and he makes out a pair of eyes near a tree with a pair of humanoid figures behind that. 
He yells at the group, waking them, and as a group of orcs descend on the camp and surround the quickly starting party. Uh, as they wake, a few orcs come in behind the camp, squaring off with Percy, Lyra, and Scanlan. Grog stands alone against the direwolf and with two orc handlers to try and keep them away from the rest of the group. Uh, and they fight. Grog slams his blade to the wolf twice, causing a howl of pain, and tries to bite in, in a, an abiding retaliation. Two orcs swing wildly, um, and the wolf bites down hard. Grog snarls back and takes some, takes a bit of damage, and they're fighting. Uh, Percy faces two orcs who are charging at him, um, and as well as a strange orc-ogre hybrid creature lumbering towards him as well, uh, which swings a huge blow that lands it. Uh, Percy fires into his leg, causing it to fall, and then unloads three rounds into it, the last one blowing its lower jaw off and killing it. As we determine, these are not necessarily the most difficult of enemies to kill, but that there is a large number of them. Well, it also this is also uh, uh, the the birth of Taliesin, the, the, the yeah, uh, constant uh, twenty roller, yes, um, um, the roller of twenties. Yes, like this was this key just. One after another. Um, it was it's kind of impressive. Yep. Yeah. And his, four, his fourth shot puts a, uh, puts a hole in one of the orcs. Grog continues to rage at the orcs that he's fighting. Um, I think he uh, kills one of the, he kills the kills the dire wolf, but yes. not the orcs. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lyra, struck by one orc, um, doesn't do much. I don't remember. <laughs> Not so much. Not so much. Scanlan avoids a blow uh, from one near him, uh, and the two herring Percy managed to hit him as well, uh, slice him in the leg and chest. Scanlan takes control of one person's mind, one of the orcs' mind, and tells him to help Grog, trotting off in that direction, leaving Scanlan free of threats. Vex shoots uh, the one that Percy blasted, trinket charging from behind a tree, uh, and they pretty much kill that orc. Uh, Zara hexes the last one near Percy and just obliterates it with Eldritch Blasts. Yep. yep. Because warlocks. Um, Although, uh, interestingly, <laughs> it must be pointed out that that was actually a, if unless I missed, misunderstood how it goes, that was a mis, misunderstanding on Matt's part because she originally said, I want to attack this one, this one, and this one. And then he just applied all of the damage to the one that she hexed. I don't know that there was... I I, I think there was definitely some communication issues there. Yeah, because... which was fine. It worked. But yeah, it was funny because like, I want to hit this one, this one, and this one with my... And then there was a little bit of confusion over what she was trying to do because she was agonizing, blasting, and so on. And then when she rolled it, he was like, all right, all three of them hit the uh, hit this one that you hexed and, and blow its torso out. And they just went with it because, of course, you would at that point because you just killed one. Um, yeah. <laughs> made for a, probably for a better down. moment anyways. But... Yeah. Well, and uh, from a from a GMing perspective as well, this was an excellent choice, I think, of combat on Matt's part. It's a dynamic combat, but you've got two new players, so you don't want to give them necessarily a punishing or a difficult combat. Um, so there's there's a lot of moving parts here, but when if you look at this from from a, a balancing perspective, this is not something that they are 
likely to have too much trouble coming out on top of. And it was an right. excellent way to get Mary and Felicia involved with those sort of uh, combat thing because obviously this little side quest that they're taking is going to lead up to fighting a dragon. And you want people to know what they're about before you throw a dragon at them. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I Especially feel like this since... was an excellent intro technique for that sort yeah. of thing. Especially since this was Mary's first D&D game ever. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, it, it, I, you wouldn't believe it was her first D&D game ever. No. But, uh, but I think they, I think uh, Matt does a really good job of laying out what you can do on paper. Um, and so it's just a, a subject of, okay, here's what I can do. Roll a D20 plus this. Yep. Um, and now she has her own game that she runs weekly. Yep. Uh, screaming after taking a glancing blow, Lyra finally does something and launches a massive bolt of lightning into the orc facing her, incinerating it instantly. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and then jumps to the, uh, uh, she jumps into the side of the one dominated by Scanlan, and uh, who then proceeds to lose his lunch uh, into the campfire at the smell of charred flesh. Uh, Scanlan loses his lunch into the campfire. That's right. Yes, not the, um, not the, <laughs> uh, the yeah. Uh, Percy charges forward, now free of issue, and blasts the shot into the leg of one of the previous uh, one of the previous ones scorched by Lyra's spell. Uh, shattering the femur before the second one blasts at the temple. A mist of blood and brains stream up smoke behind him. Wait, uh, Percy, I believe that was the dominated one. Yes, I think I, I think the dominated one also got hit. Yes. Oh no, no, those were all fired at the dominated one. Like the, the all of Percy's shots were blew out the leg and then headshotted yes. the dominated one. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think the dominant one had also been hit by the lightning bolt, hadn't it? Yes. Because the lightning bolt hit two of them, and the dominant yeah, one was so. one of them. Yeah. Think, think lightning probably, bolt hit, yeah. hit it hit the one that had been harassing her, and then it also hit the dominating one, did less damage to that one than to the one that was yeah. harassing her. Um, and then Percy just unloaded into the dominated one um, and just splattered him out very Quentin Tarantino esque. Yep. Um, Percy gets a lot of Quentin Tarantino style kills. Yes. Uh, I mean, when you're when you're the only one wielding a gun, you get those. Yeah. Um, Grog overhead smashes uh, into the opponent's left, driving it deep, driving his axe into, deep into its shoulder. Um, and then he severs the arm from the body. Uh, and as that orc falls on the dead, Grog turns to the last remaining orc, grabbing it by the throat. He tells it to stand down. As Zara yells at him in his native tongue. She tries to get some information about the white dragon in the area, and he tells her that it resides in the tallest mountain to the north. He laughs at them for wanting to go up after such a dangerous creature. Gaining the info that they needed, Grog pushes him away and then deheads him. Uh, deheads him. Decapitates him is the phrase I was trying to use. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to Lyra's extreme distress. Uh, yeah, to Lyra's extreme <laughs> Lyra is quite distressed at the lack of communication. Um... And and but decides that they will all go back to sleep as it is not uh, or, or sleepy time as she calls it. Yes, um, Lyra's absolutely adorable. Um, they take the rest of the night, roughly another four hours of sleep before they wake up and break camp. Uh, Vex uses her knowledge of the woods uh, and leads the group off the road through a fairly dense underbrush. The cold deepens to this point. Uh, the group has pulled to the point that the group has, pulled, has to pull out every stitch of fur and leather they have to try and maintain all their body heat. Most are okay, but Scanlan isn't handling the cold well. 
Lyra gives him her stone of resistance to help him shake off the cold of Vax. As they travel, a heavy snow begins to fall. Soon, Vax is telling everyone to take cover as a massive shape flies overhead, ice and hail falling through it. A bit of it slams into Grog, but everyone else manages to dodge. They press on towards the mountains. They soon come across an old ruin of some sort situated near a large frozen lake. Vex notices a strange glowing thing floating around it, and they decide to give it a wide berth, narrowly avoid what would likely be a confrontation with some type of supernatural creature. Um, the horses trudge through the thick forest undergrowth and soon come upon the base of the mountain. Now, here is where we circle back to that travel thing, because eventually horses have to get left behind. Uh Generally, uh, they do, yeah. In D&D do, games, yes. As do bears on occasion, but um, this actually brings up the question of what about characters whose purpose is to be mounted? Like, I like, mean, I feel like... I always feel like if you're going to introduce a character with, like that into the game... As you a better PC, be playing like a, Warhammer Fantasy. <laughs> like a, uh, a, a Cavalier or um, something to that effect. Uh, talk it over with the DM so that the DM um, can figure out a way to accommodate that into the storyline. Because most D&D games are generally built around... Uh, uh, if nothing else, the idea of an eventual dungeon crawl. Like it, it is in the name, dungeons. Right. Yep. You don't bring your horses into the dungeon with you. Not unless um, it's a really big dungeon. Not unless it's a really big dungeon and you are supremely confident in your trap-finding abilities. Because yes. those horses don't horses have... Horses have shit reflexes. <laughs> right. <laughs> um... So that's always an interesting thing for me um, because, uh, like, for me, in in a standard Dungeons & Dragons game, like, paying for horses, that's something that I always sort of let somebody else in the party do because I know that's just throwing money away. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) Alternatively, make sure they're a paladin who has uh, summoned Steve or whatever that spell is. their own horse, yeah. You know, and I find that that's interesting. Or Celestial Ram, as the case may be. (laughs) Looking at you, Benjen. When you force your players to take care of animals, um, it provides sort of an extra level of depth, I find. Uh, to the game because now you've got in addition to yourself you've got to take care of you've got to figure out you know what how am i going to how am i going to not only keep this horse around uh, because i need it for transportation but also what am i going to do uh in relation to not making sure that it doesn't die when i go off to do my adventuring thing inside the mountain or wherever you're going that the horse can't go yeah um so I, I do find it, it's, it's an interesting question to have, especially because there are characters that can be built around having a mount. Oh, yeah. Um, and like that can be their thing. There are lots of things supporting mounted characters, but in the classical D&D setting, typically you're going to have to do something about that mount. Yep. Eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, this is something interesting. Alternatively, if you've got people that are interested in mounted characters... As a DM, consider what sort of stories are mounted characters most likely to get involved in. Mm-hmm. And you might be able to take your um, you know, normal 
run standard run of the mill dungeon crawly sort of narrative sequence to something a little more open ended or a little more open open turfed in a sense you know there's open air right yeah there's great stories to be told about warring feudal kingdoms and yep. the, the the armies that they field and the skirmisher uh actions and scouting and spying and political intrigue that has to go along with it and a knight would fit fantastically into that sort of into yep. that sort of night, not not, night, not every, nobility, any of that kind of stuff. Not not every story has to be finding the dragon and killing the dragon. Oh right. yeah. Sometimes um, it's finding the enemy general, uh, co-opting him, uh, assassinating the the seneschal and the the grand vizier, um, <laughs> poisoning the king, but it was uh-huh. a slow acting poison so that he can uh, destabilize, go mad for a bit, and then the entire enemy kingdom collapses politically, and then you can just nicely sweep in, co-opt it before you realize that we did not have the economic uh, structure in order to run two kingdoms. We can only run one effectively. Now everybody's starving to death. Plague, plague breaks out. Sorry, am I going too far? <laughs> I really want to play a Game of Thrones setting uh, <laughs> game with Jack as a GM now. All right. Oh my god! Like, oh, add it to the list. Add it to the list. <laughs> right now, we already have enough enough secret games planned to last us through the apocalypse. Yeah, I, I feel like somewhere we have to have. We should eventually get like a whiteboard and just have a list of things. Yes, the apocalypse <laughs> five months from now. All right. Anyways. <laughs> Vex spots a large cavern ahead of them. Lyra tries to figure out if they can climb the mountain, but having seen one for the first time in person, she is very confused as to whether or not they can traverse it. Uh, Grog, being raised in the mountains, points out places where they could climb up if they had tools and all, and all had the, the ability. Scanlan suggests Grog perhaps going up and bringing the dragon down. As they debate their next move, a strange rushing like wind in a bag. Sound starts to whistle. <laughs> yeah, like in a bag of holding. Um, Vex turns to see a shadow growing as it comes through the air before slamming inside of her horse and sending her sprawling. Grog looks that direction and sees a large blue-skinned frost giant walking out of the forest. It yells out towards the cavern as it picks up another massive rock, calling another of its kind from the cave. As bloody Vex lays on the ground, everyone else dismounts and prepares for combat. And that is where the episode ends, with the surprise mountain from the side. No one ever suspe- No one ever expects the surprise giant. Right. <laughs> yep. It's like, like a surprise like, beholder. How often does the big show sneak up on the ring? Like that doesn't happen too terribly often. <laughs> yeah. Last last surprise giant was what second Hobbit movie when they were actually climbing one and didn't realize it. Yeah, that would be it. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, that was a pretty decent episode. The, the the end of it kind of got wrapped up a bit in fighting, but I feel like there's a lot of good. There were a lot of good moments in this episode, mm-hmm. especially yeah. when mm-hmm. being introduced and we sort of learning a bit about learning a little bit more about the world and, and the the realm of 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 uh, Vasselheim. And I in particular enjoy like like one of the things that that one of the itches that I love to scratch for me personally is. That minutia of travel is part of why I got into that conversation earlier. I really have this inordinate amount of love for things that other people see as busy work, at least in the context of D and D. Um, like taking, like you know, 
gathering herbs and stocking an herbalist kit and and going out and gathering uh like like one of one of the things like if I had the time or if I had the time with the group that would allow it, I would totally love to play a wizard that used a component pouch not a not a focus and went out and actually gathered the components uh, you know on a daily basis yeah um, <laughs> but that would be too hey guys. much. Guys, we need to go into this cave to get some bat shit. I'm out of. I need. I, I, I need more shit. components for my spy, my fireball. I, wait, bats! I need to harvest their guano. Like that would be a hilarious <laughs> character to play, but I feel like a lot of players would get tired of it after a while. So, uh, although although the idea of a the although that that does open up other you know storytelling. Well, if I ever run a dark sun campaign and. Okay. Oh my god. There's hey, no there I would say there's no spellcasting focuses on hey, um, I forget the name of the planet, but uh um uh oh, stars with an A. Yep. I want to say Arrakis, but I know that that's not it. But that's no, the like, other I, desert desert planet. <laughs> but I just I just love the I love the idea of, you know, this person oh, pardon me, a group of stalwart adventurers that are my friends. I uh, need to go into this I need to go into this cave and gather a pie, a metric ton of bat shit. So if you would be so kind <laughs> and then this, And then uh you know, while he's in the cave, oh fuck giant spider comes crawling around the right you know and uh <laughs> or <laughs> but they kill the giant spider and then they set themselves up as the uh the premier providers of bat shit to the greater uh, metropolitan area exactly. oh, yes, i happen to be the proprietor of the amazing bat shit mines of al hakan yes i have i found a great deal of bat shit in the spider invested mine would you care to join me for a cup um, and and like like that concept by itself just you know is so appealing to me uh, on, course, a, on, a, point, sort of, on a very visceral level. Um, at that point, of course, the drow then come up out of the underdark because they're losing all their batshit, and then there is a war for this the, the great incredibly the, wars. <laughs> the guano wars of eleven ninety two. Lost some good uh, men in those bad shit minds. I kind of want to play of, that game see, now. All of this, all of this, spawned from me saying that I really enjoy the idea of going out and gathering stuff for my component couch. Yeah. That is why I like it. <laughs> because be you hard. never know if it will stop. That needs to be an actual historical element of a, a homebrew game. Yeah, mm-hmm. the Great Guano Wars of, <laughs> of whatever era. They are the Drow and the Elves. You start it, and I will write it down. <laughs> <laughs> we have a brand new world coming up that has no history. Let's do it. <laughs> all that we know was that for six or seven years, the Elves all went batshit. <laughs> See, that's the reason why the elves and the drow are at war. It, it's, it's, it's forgotten. <laughs> right, it's, it's a historical economic conflict <laughs> based yeah. around spellcrafting components. The and there's that one guy who is <laughs> a then, truther who's like, no, no, it's not about Loth versus Corellin. It was all for economic reasons. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then, but then... Then you've got the wizard who gets smart, and instead of going out in the caves to get the bat shit, he just buys a bat and has it in a cage and carries it around all the time. <laughs> right. Has this self self sustaining supply of bat shit. <laughs> <laughs> 
those of you that don't know, uh, bat guano is a spell component for fireball. Uh, it's bat guano and a twig, isn't it? Something, Something like, like that. that. It's like shit. It's just some fucking arbitrary pieces of spell components. It's like, why? And I take this shit and I take this shit and spread it with a stick and then fling the stick and it explodes. <laughs> no, 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 no. It is a tiny ball, at least in 5e, tiny ball of bat guano and sulfur. So the sulfur at least makes some sense. Yeah. I put sulfur, the, sulfur I, is definitely flammable. I dip this bat guano in sulfur and throw it at your face, and if I'm very lucky, it'll explode. It is pretty uh, phosphate-rich with ammonium oxalate in it. So yeah, yeah, I, just, yeah, I, just, I just like the idea of throwing it and it not turning into a fireball. You can smash all the guy's face. <laughs> I mean, it's still a win. <laughs> Oops, I'm sorry. Let me clean that up for you. <laughs> oh, we get silly here. Anyways, yeah, we do. We've been Final Show Films. We produce a wide variety of content every day of the week. You can check us out our website at FinalShowFilms.com. Uh, and if you'd like to support us financially, you can just go on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash fsfilms. Thank you, by the way, to all of our patrons, especially our $25 tier supporters, Chris Comfort, Antitonic, and Cat Waterflame. Uh, thank you to our new patron supporter there. Uh, and, hey. and also thank you to the folks over at 411mania.com. Jeremy. Tell us a little bit about 411mania.com. 411mania.com is a pop culture site that caters caters to uh, basically everything that geeks could be interested in. We cover uh, comic books and and movies and television, Uh, all the latest blockbusters that are coming out. We usually have reviews of those, uh, reviews of of new TV shows. Uh, We cover music, uh, games. Uh, lots of wrestling, um, MMA, uh, all of Final Show film stuff as well. Ch- uh, check us out, 411mania.com. Yep, and do they have any articles about the uh, value of bat guano? We do not, but that is definitely something to look into. I, I definitely, I'm sure that would go viral. I feel like that's <laughs> something we probably need to sort of work on there. Uh, anyways, uh, thanks to the four folks over for me for having us over there. We appreciate them. We appreciate all of you listening, and we'll see you all next time. Say goodbye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Goodbye. goodbye.